Our Old Testament reading comes from Genesis chapter 32. We're going to be reading verses 22 through 32. Hear the word of the Lord. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. And now our responsive reading from the Epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 11, 17 through 22, verses 39 through 40, and chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Hear the word of the Lord. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. These were all committed for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made complete. Therefore, And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scoring his shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be God. It's a privilege to welcome to our pulpit today the Reverend Mac Holt. I could tell you that I first met Mac when he was a junior high student attending Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church in Lexington. His father was then and continues to be an elder in that strong congregation. Mac is a graduate of Reform Seminary. I can tell you that he served on the staff then at Tate's Creek under Robert Cunningham and Mark Randall. He is now the Reformed University Minister to the campus of the University of Tennessee. He's married to Jess, and they have three children. Now, I could tell you all that, and that's who he is. But now I really want to tell you about him. This young man, and I stress young, you need to know if you're visiting today, he's the youngest minister to stand in the Christ's Covenant Reformed Church pulpit. <laughs> so you forever be famous, the first and the youngest. But Mac, you need to know, is a conflicted soul. He resided so very close to the University of K Kentucky. From the nursery he was dressed in Kentucky blue. From his childhood, he was an avid historian on the storied Wildcats basketball legends. He has reveled in the recent successes of Kentucky football. He was raised with an anathema for the volunteers of Tennessee from the nursery, orange was an evil color. So just as the Lord called Jonah to the city of Nineveh, to the hated enemy of Israel, he also called Macho to the University of Tennessee he has actually been seen a couple of times wearing orange. I have not witnessed this act of supreme humility, but with all of that, I will tell you that more than any one person I know, he's bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Reformed faith to the University of Tennessee. And for that, we love you, Mac, and we look forward to hearing you this morning. Now let's pray together. Our Father, we bow before you as your priests this morning, all of us. And week after week, we come to this point in our worship, and we bow before you, and 
we wear the priestly garb of Jesus Christ. During the week, you've sent us out into the world to be salt and light, to in some way be prophets spreading the gospel and the truth of Christ. You've called us then to return on the Lord's day and bow before you and bring our children, our grandchildren, our parents, our grandparents, bring our neighbors, our friends, the people with whom we work, bring our needs and lay them before you. Father, at this time, week after week, we've especially mentioned those who are in some form of greater need. This morning, we pray for Cheryl Parker as she prepares for surgery. We pray that you would use this surgery to accomplish that for which it was designed. We pray that you would bring healing. Protect her through this, Father. We pray for Joan Schaefer. We pray that you would stabilize her health. We pray that you would give the doctors insight and wisdom to know exactly what to do. We pray that she would soon be sitting in this congregation again. Our Father, bless David Mattingly. We thank you for how week after week, month after month, you've blessed, you've healed. Oh, Father, we pray that you would strengthen him physically. We pray that, Father, you would give him perseverance and heart and soul. Our Father, we thank you for his testimony during this entire time, for his laughter, for his smile. We pray that you would give him many years yet upon this earth and bring healing. Now, Father, as we open your word, we pray that you would bless Mac this morning. We pray that, Father, you would fill him with your spirit. He cannot speak in and of himself so that it would make any difference in our lives. So we cast ourselves upon your grace this morning, Father. Fill him with your spirit. And as he speaks, may we hear your voice in our hearts. Teach us, Father. Teach us. Tell us a story again. Take us to a greater depth, to a greater height. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Mac, welcome to the pulpit. Well, good morning. I do not need to tell you who I am after that introduction from John. That was amazing. Thank you, John. Truly, I am remarkably thankful that just around 20 years ago, John Sartell left Memphis, Tennessee and came to Lexington and served as my church's pastor. Uh, I will forever be thankful for the way that God used him in our church, in my family's life, in my life, and it is an honor to bring the word to you all this morning. Um, Briefly, let me just open us in prayer. Father, we come before you again this morning 
placing our hope on the promise that you will indeed meet your people through your word. God, comfort those of us who are in need of your comfort. Convict those of us who have grown too comfortable. Use your word so that your glory, your name, might be made great in our hearts and in our lives and spill over out of this church into Memphis, Tennessee. We ask this in your name. Amen. Next week, Tennessee students will return to the campus, and we will begin a sermon series walking through Hebrews chapter 11. These stories of lives of men and women who had great faith listed in Hebrews 11. And that letter, or the sermon to the Hebrews, it was written to encourage a group of people who were beginning to face real opposition for their faith. And as that opposition grew, they were becoming sluggish in their faith, the letter tells us. Some were even turning from it. And the author is at pains to call them to a patient and enduring faith. And that is my desire for college students, that they would come to have an enduring faith, a patient faith, a faith that reaches out as the arm of the soul and grabs firmly to the promises of God during their college years and beyond. And that is also my prayer for you this morning. But the question remains, how is such a faith formed? How does God form a patient and enduring faith? Now, to answer that question, the author of Hebrews addresses us in Hebrews 11. He gives us a definition of faith and then moves through case study after case study of men and women who have exhibited such faith. And each example, each person invites us to look back to the pages of the Old Testament to see how God formed such a faith in them, to look to this great cloud of witnesses, to look at how God was at work in their life to lay aside every weight every sin which clings so closely, and so run the race that was before them. And one of those names is Jacob. And when we look at the life of Jacob, everything in his life leads to this moment in Genesis chapter 32. This is the decisive, climactic moment of his life. For this is when he encounters God. This is the moment when everything Jacob knew to be true becomes a weighty, a beautiful reality that demands his surrender. And what we see in this encounter is a God who will break us of our self-sufficiency so that he would make his power perfect in our weakness and we would glorify him. Three points to move us through this encounter. The preparation for encountering God, the reality of encountering God, and the results of encountering God. So first, let's look to how God prepares Jacob to encounter him. Now, if you know Jacob's story, you know that his name is a great descriptor of who he is. His name means supplanter. Now, it's okay if you don't know what that means. I didn't know what that meant. Had to look it up. Supplanter is associated with someone who will do whatever it takes to get ahead. Someone who strives after what they don't have. They will stop at nothing. They will manipulate. 
They will cheat. They will steal. This is very consistent with Jacob's story. He comes out of the womb grasping to his older twin's heel. And his whole life he lives in that same brother's shadow. Eventually he has to skip town, run from his brother, run from his home because he has swindled his brother out of the birthright. He has tricked his father into giving him the blessing instead of his brother. And he goes on from there to his uncle Laban's house. And there... He out-hustles, he out-works, he outsmarts his uncle and ends up marrying both of Laban's daughter and leaves Laban's house with a great deal of Laban's wealth. Jacob is a self-made man, someone who, it would seem, nothing has been given to him. He has no silver spoon childhood. He has hustled. He has outworked. He has outsmarted everyone and everything in his path. And he has been remarkably successful. His is the character arc of so many beloved stories and movies that we love, rags to riches. Everyone overlooks Jacob, but he has made it. He went to a foreign land and he has prospered. And now he is coming home, heading back to his homeland. And he has just found out that his brother Esau is headed his way with a band of 400 armed men. And Jacob is terrified. Thinking, of course, Esau is coming for revenge to kill him, his wives, his children. Jacob is freaking out. Thinking Esau is coming to put an end to me tomorrow. But Jacob always has a plan. He's always out in front of everyone else, always 10 steps ahead. And so this is what he does. Jacob divides up his livestock, his servants, into several different groups, puts different assorted gifts with them, and then sends them out in successive waves so that each wave will hit Esau and the servants leading that waves of gifts will tell him, these are gifts from your servant Jacob. Now what's he trying to do? He's trying to appease Esau. He's trying to lessen Esau's rightful wrath. He's trying to manipulate and control the situation. Here are gifts. Here's an incredible amount of wealth for you, Esau, from your servant Jacob. He is back there somewhere. You will meet him soon. But in the meantime, look at how generous, how servile he is to you. And so Jacob has sent out the waves of gifts, and that is where our text picks up this morning. Night has fallen. Esau and 400 warriors are out in the darkness somewhere. A fateful meeting will follow when the sun rises And Jacob has no word back as to whether his plan to appease Esau has worked. And so he is terrified. In a last-ditch effort, he gathers his family and remaining servants and sends them across to the far side of the river, hoping maybe they at least will be spared Esau's wrath. And now he is alone. He's separated from his resources, away from his family, All of these things that he has built up and relies upon for strength, for comfort, they have been stripped from him. And for the very first time in Jacob's recorded life, his self-sufficiency, his strength and resources, his ability to just make things happen has failed. And he is alone, he is weak, he is desperate. God prepares Jacob to encounter him by first stripping away everything that Jacob had looked to for strength, everything he has relied upon. 
God backs him into a corner with no way out, all so that he has to come face to face with his radical dependence. And that is what I would like for us to consider this morning, that you will never encounter your God until you have been made desperate, until you come face to face with the reality of yourself and see the truth. And the truth is that nothing has fundamentally changed about our condition since the cradle. I have a six-month-old baby girl at home. I am smitten with her. But if you've been around babies, you know how dependence is pictured in them. She cannot feed herself, change herself, roll from her back to her belly without someone's assistance. Utter dependence is pictured in the babe. But as we grow up, we lose acquaintance with this fundamental truth. The good gifts, good gifts that God has given us, your strengths, your work ethic, charisma, personality, resources, friendships, wealth. These good gifts can serve to insulate you from your dependence. And then you throw in the constant distraction of our digital age, and we become remarkably cut off from our dependence. I lived in Montana at the end of college trying to be a cowboy. I moved there with some friends, and when we were off work, we loved to do a hike called the Beehive Basin. The trail, it wound up into the mountains, and you walked up and you entered into this gigantic basin, this snowfield, with all of these several mountain peaks surrounding it. And normally, I would do this hike with my friends. Well, one day, they all had to work, I was off, and the fishing was terrible, so I decided to do this hike alone. And I headed up the trail. I enter into this basin, I'm looking at the mountain peaks, and not 100 yards into this snow field, and I notice there is something lying in the snow just up in front of me. I get closer, and it's an animal. And I realize that there's a reddish-brown tint to the snow around it, and it hits me. This is an animal that is dead and lying on the ground. And then I heard a howl, and then more howling, which, full disclaimer, this might have been another hiker's beagle or other dog of some sort, but to my mind, this was wolves, and I was coming between them and their prey. So I panicked. Now I reached into my backpack, grasping for bear spray that you ought always to have with you when you are in the backcountry of Montana. I grabbed hold of a canister, and I brought it out, only to realize that it was peanut butter, and at that moment, the reality of my utter frailty, my weakness, my dependence hit. I was no cowboy. I was a kid from Kentucky holding a can of peanut butter with either wolves or a deranged beagle somewhere close. My fundamental condition was exposed in that moment. I am dependent. Now, something significantly more dramatic has just happened to Jacob. His utter dependence has been exposed. He has nothing left, nothing to cling to. But that is precisely when he encounters God. And here's the point. You will never encounter God when you come to him from a posture of self-reliance. You will never encounter God when you are so insulated by resources, family, friends, successes, any number of good things that we prop ourselves up with to feel strong, independent, self-sufficient. You will never encounter God when every time adversity comes your way, 
you overfunction, outwork, outplan, and make everything work according to your own strength. Nor will you encounter God when every time adversity comes, you cope, numbing out with food, drink, distraction. As I heard one pastor say, you must encounter God from a place of remarkable dependence. God's office is at the end of our rope. God's office is at the end of our rope. But that is a very hard truth to swallow. The reformers cried out, glory to God alone, and yet we attempt to rob our God of his rightful fame and glory when we live the self-securing life. Jesus says, look to the birds of the air, are they not fed? Look to the lilies of the field, not even Solomon in all his glory was arrayed like one of these. Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Are you not of more value than they? And your heavenly Father knows what you need. Do you know that your anxiety is an attempt to rob God of his glory? Anxiety and fear says, through my incessant worry and thinking, I can find the solution. I can secure the future for myself and those that I love. And to this, God thunderously proclaims, I hold the future in my hands, and not a hair on your head I have not numbered. Or consider how our independence affects our approach to God, our prayer, our worship, our desire to draw near to Him. Consider the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The one has the audacity to draw near, thinking that he is accepted by God due to his merits, his work, his righteousness, how he is unlike that sinner over there. God, I will draw near to you by my achievements. And the other stands far off and beats his chest, dependent, knowing that only the goodness and grace of the Lord can be his hope to draw near. We are a people with a deep-set independence and self-reliance. Our anxieties in life and our approaches to God prove this to be the case. And our God is dead set on breaking this, for he alone will have the glory. He alone will have our dependence, our confidence, our strength. Reformed people, Do you not think that God has sovereignly orchestrated every moment and minutia of Jacob's life to bring him to this point of desperation? Do you not think that God is using every moment and minutia of your life to do the same? His office is at the end of your rope, the end of your strength, the end of your striving, and you are there all the time whether you realize it or not. That is the preparation for encountering God. Now let us look to the reality of encountering God, what the substance of this encounter is. So Jacob, he is alone, he is terrified, he is desperate, and that is when God shows up, but in such a strange way. In the form of an unnamed man, God rushes at Jacob, tries to throw him down, and the two lock in hours of wrestling. What in the world? Picture it for a moment. Imagine that you are Jacob. At the end of your rope in every sense, it is dark, and you notice somewhere here in the darkness, there is a figure 
And so you call out, who's there? And rather than supplying an answer, that person rushes you, attacks you, and starts throwing you around. That is the first mark of encountering God. He begins intruding into your space and into your life. You see, Jacob had known the truth about God before. He is an inheritor of the great promises. He knows the truth about God. He's had visions of the heavens opening up and a great ladder coming down and angels ascending and descending and God seated on the throne. And yet his response to that was, God, I will serve you so long as you do these things for me. This is the first time, the first time, that God actually begins to have his way with Jacob. And here's the point. When you genuinely encounter God, he will not leave you unchanged. He will be no accessory to your life. He will be no religious system for your security, comfort, and happiness as he had been for Jacob up till now. He will have his way with you. He will throw his divine weight and authority around in your life, and that is going to upset some things. And you know that you have encountered him when he begins to have his way, when he begins to have his say with things like your finances, your sexuality, your private life, your work, your parenting, your anxieties, your fears, your plans for the future. This is the first mark of encountering God. Are you being changed? Do God and his ways get its say in your life. But the encounter doesn't stop there. God intrudes into Jacob's life and throws him around, and Jacob hangs on, grappling with God. Now, if you've ever wrestled with someone for five minutes, or you've seen a wrestling match, you know how exhausting it is. Now, picture Jacob, and he's been wrestling with God for an entire night. He thought that he was at the end of his rope, but now his cardiovascular system is about to explode from the exertion, and his brother and 400 armed men are only a few moments away from entering the scene. And that is when God reveals himself, and in such an interesting way. Look at the clues with me. The first clue to who this mystery man is, he touches Jacob's hip, instantly disabling it. The hip is the largest, the strongest joint in the human body. An orthopedic surgeon once told me, Mac, it would take the force of falling feet first from a couple stories up or the impact of a high-speed collision to dislocate a healthy human hip. And with just a touch, this mystery person dislocates, ruins Jacob's hip. Jacob would have instantly known that he was wrestling with someone who was holding back. That he had been grappling with someone who was unimaginably more powerful than him, but was limiting himself. Like the young boy who's wrestling his father, throwing all of his weight, all of his strength into the wrestling match, and then suddenly realize, my goodness, my dad is so much stronger than me and he is holding back. And God says, let me go for the day has broken. That's the second clue to who Jacob is wrestling. Why is it so important that Jacob not see this person in the light of day? 
And you look down further and you see Jacob say, I have seen the face of God and my life has been delivered. Why should you let me go before daybreak? Because you do not want to see my face. No one can see my face and live. A terrifying reality to behold. And Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. I know that seeing your face will be my death, but I am not letting go. It all hits right here. This is what Jacob has been after his whole life. And so he grabs hold of God, refusing to let go without the blessing. Rewind the tape on Jacob's life, back to when he lived with his father Isaac. And he finds out that his father is about to bless his older brother. In this culture, it was just the law of the day that the inheritance went to the oldest. Isaac knows that his death is drawing near, so he has called for Esau to be brought into him and be made the patriarch of the house. And Jacob learns of this. You know the text. He goes and he dresses up as his brother, covering his arms with animal fur and hair. And then he goes in before his father and attempts to intone his brother's voice, pretending to be someone he is not. How long do you think this was going to work, Jacob? Do you really think that this momentary trick is going to secure you as the patriarch of this family? Of course not. So why the madness of dressing up and impersonating Esau? He was desperate to get his father's blessing. He was desperate to hear his father say something to the effect of, I approve of you, I delight in you, I love you. And so he goes and he tricks his father. And surprise, surprise, it doesn't work. So he runs off to a foreign land and there he meets the beauty Rachel, infatuated with her from the moment he meets her, beginning to think, if only I can have her. If only Rachel will look at me, telling me that she loves me and approves of me and delights in me, then I will be okay. And again, it fails. He gets her, but it is a mess. And then the striving and the working to build his wealth again and again, he is after a blessing, but it has never been enough. But here, Jacob has hold of God. And if he blesses me, that is enough. Everything that I have looked for in my father's blessing, in Rachel's beauty, in Laban's wealth, it is right here. I have been so wrong. It is God himself I have been after. He is the blessing I have been striving for. God, won't you bless me? That is the second mark of an encounter with God. When you realize that he is the blessing you have been after in all of these other areas, searching for a blessing in your work being successful, in your kids turning out all right, in finding a relationship, in having pains, sicknesses, anxieties, fears taken away. You are looking for the blessing in whatever it is that you find yourself thinking, if only I could secure this, then I will be okay. But an encounter with your God leads you to say, God, you are the blessing that I have been after. An encounter with God leads you to seeing that his blessing, his approval, his love, nothing matters more than loving him and being loved by him, serving him and being served by him. He is what you have been after. He is who you have been after. For he has created you for himself and your heart will be restless until it rests in him, says Augustine. And God had to strip everything away from Jacob to bring him to this point. 
all the preparation led to this. God, you are all that I have been after. Won't you bless me? And my goodness, the kindness, God blesses him. And a blessing was always verbal. We don't know what he said. All that we know is that God changes his name to Israel. But what God said is what Jacob had been striving for his whole life. What Jacob had looked to in other people, in career, in these different places, that's never worked. But to hear God bless him, and Jacob lets go, collapses in happy exhaustion. I have to imagine that the blessing in some way included, Jacob, I love you. I am for you. I will never let you go. I will strive for you. Why do I think that? Because God changes his name to Israel, which conveys the meaning, may God strive for him, which means two things, that God is now striving, working on behalf of Jacob. So Jacob, you can rest from your labors of securing your life. But secondly, that God is striving towards Jacob, to gain Jacob, to have Jacob. God wanted Jacob, desires Jacob. And so exhaustion and striving gives way to hearing his God bless him. How in the world can God do this? How does he allow sinful, scandalous Jacob, who is nowhere shown as being admirable, how could God allow Jacob to encounter him, to wrestle with him, and receive blessing and not destruction? How could sinful man cling to holy God and live? Because God holds back in this wrestling match so that he might unleash the full weight of his omnipotence in another wrestling match of God and man. Owen, Calvin, Edwards, they all argue that the unnamed wrestler here with Jacob is in fact the pre-incarnate son of God. But God would take on the fullness of human flesh as the man Jesus of Nazareth, a man from the house and line of Jacob, and there would be a new wrestling match. But in this match, God would hold nothing back. The full weight of omnipotent and holy justice would be released on the God-man Jesus Christ. What Jacob did not receive, what God held back from us, was unleashed on Jesus Christ. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. All so that Jacob might encounter God and live and receive these words of blessing. All so that you might live to encounter your God and hear the blessing. You are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. And to have this, my blood must be spilt. My son must be crushed by the justice you deserve. Do you not see that this is what God says of you in Jesus Christ? That God looks at you and looks at me and says, you are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. And friends, that is more than true statement. That is a reality to behold, to step into, that leads to doxology. This is the blessing that you have been striving for in every area of your life, and your God freely offers it to you if you come to his son.
And it is the blessing that will allow you to move into the rest of life as someone who can now be a blessing rather than seek a blessing. Which brings us to our final point, the result of encountering God. Verse 31, Jacob leaves with a limp. I've heard elsewhere that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was asked, what is the mark of someone who has encountered God? And he replied, they walk with a limp. You know, of all the things that Jacob could be remembered for, it was his limp that the Israelites commemorated. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. A limp, a perpetual sign of his dependence, was Jacob's mark and legacy. This is the result of encountering God, a limp, a real sense, maybe even and often a painful sense that you can do nothing without the power and grace of your God. This certainly sounds like Paul, does it not? In 2 Corinthians 12, when he speaks of boasting only of his weakness, of a thorn in his flesh that he pleaded with his God to remove, and God responds, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Each of these scars, limps, Paul like thorns in the flesh. They are constant reminders that we live moment by moment of every day only by the grace of God given to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. I do not know what your limp is. I know what mine are, but I know that you have them, and they have been sovereignly appointed. Do not run from them. They are the crutch that keeps you leaning into the arms of your heavenly Father. They are the wave that casts you back against the rock of the Almighty. Now, the point here is not that we celebrate or call attention to our weaknesses all the time, turning our weaknesses into some strange new strength. The point here is that God has given Jacob, given Paul, all those who encounter God, a continual reminder of where they are to place their confidence. That's the point of the limp. Jacob, I will be your only confidence. I will be your only place of dependence. It's Heidelberg question one. What is your only comfort in life and in death? What is your only confidence in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. What a confidence. And it is that joyful limp this humble boldness that leads those who have encountered God out into the world, blessing others, not needing to get a blessing from somewhere out here in the world. There's this very interesting little moment at the end of Jacob's life. I find it fascinating. He's an old man, and he's brought to see uh, his son Joseph in Egypt, this great statesman. And we're told that Jacob gets to meet Pharaoh the most powerful man in the ancient world, someone who would have terrified the old Jacob, the self-confident Jacob. But what does Jacob do? Presumably still limping, he walks up to Pharaoh, and Jacob blesses Pharaoh. And that is what encountering your God will do. It will leave you with a limp, 
a joyful limp that only the Christian can have, that brings blessing to the world around you as they see God's power made perfect in your weakness. As you proclaim what seems to be foolishness to the world around you, we proclaim Christ crucified. We proclaim the goodness, the truth, the power of our God to the world around us through our speech and our life. What a great encouragement it is to look closely at the story of someone who is in this great cloud of witnesses. For when we look at Jacob, we see the life of a man who is often faulty and frail, and yet he is included in that cloud of witnesses, not because of his towering abilities, his strength, his accomplishments, but because his life so clearly proclaims that it is not how well you have run the race, for Jacob limped to the end, but who you are looking to, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. How are we to respond to this story? I did not pick this, but the prelude to this morning's service is take my life and let it be. That is a terrifying thing to pray when you consider the life of Jacob. And yet this must be the prayer of God's people. Lord, take my life and let it be. It shall no longer be mine. It shall be thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. Which means you are inviting God to do whatever it takes to make this a reality. And we will long for that in its fullness until the glorious day that he returns. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the glorious truth of your gospel. That you love and desire a broken and scandalous people like us to bring us to yourself, to justify us, to sanctify us, to form us into the image of your Son. Lord, take our lives and make them yours for your glory and the good of the world around us. Amen.